0: Babak Dardashti is a dentist in Los Angeles.
1: I believe it was around Christmas time uh, in 2013. We were ready to close up for the week of Christmas, New Year coming up. I received this letter. It was from, I believe, IRS. And reading that, it's like, yeah, you haven't been paying your payroll taxes for six months. So that was very odd. And I was like, OK, maybe I should just call my payroll company Monday. There's just probably something they will handle.
0: Dardashti had been working with the same payroll company since he started his practice, Brighter Dental, 13 years before. The company was called LA Payroll. They helped him pay his employees, automatically deducting whatever taxes were owed and sending them to the IRS. When he got the letter, he gave them a call.
1: And I noticed a little bit of a panic in the voice of the person that I was assigned to me. Not like, any other time. And, and I said, is everything OK? Because we were talking all of this time. And she said, you know what, you're the 20th person who called about that. And we are calling our, uh, or my boss, and we cannot find our boss.
0: It turns out, dozens of businesses in the area had received some version of the same letter, either from the IRS or the state of California. They were mostly small businesses, a travel agency, a gym, a church, a daycare center, Their owners learned that for half a year, the tax money LA Payroll had been deducting from their accounts never made it to the government. On the phone, the woman from LA Payroll told Dardashti they were trying to figure out what was going on, but they were having trouble.
1: I called the owner, there was no response. It was a very confusing time.
0: He says he filed a police report and he called the FBI. He asked the IRS for some flexibility on paying them back, but he says they refused to give him a break. Dardashti called LA Payroll again. They said they didn't have any answers, that the staff there wasn't even getting paid anymore. They recommended that he just pay what he owed.
1: The whole uh, kind of floor sank beneath me almost. At the time, it was very, very depressing, you know, because my office, especially at the time, was still a very small dental office. And coming up with about $30,000 at once was just uh, a killer, I don't make that much
0: The guy who allegedly stole his money was named Tavmus Gregorian. In total, 141 local businesses lost about $4 million in the scandal. Dardashti was able to save his practice after draining his savings. He was able to cover the taxes for himself and his four other employees. But other businesses weren't able to do the same. They had to file for bankruptcy. They had to lay people off. One man who owned a company that sold DVDs online said he had a heart attack in part because of the stress. What none of them knew and couldn't have known at the time is that their money disappeared into one of the most infamous money laundering schemes on record, one that had funneled billions of dollars around the world through one of the world's biggest banks.
2: Yeah, so uh, the bank that I'm looking at is one that everyone's been interested in for quite some time, including myself. It's uh, Deutsche Bank.
0: I'm Azine Gureshi, and this is suspicious activity inside the FinCEN files. And that's BuzzFeed News reporter Tom Warren, Today on the show, one troubled bank and the money launderers who infiltrated it. This is episode three, Know Your Customer.
2: When you go and talk to people who work in finance and you talk about Deutsche, there's often a nod and a wink, you know, this kind of like, ah, Deutsche. You know, a bit of a naughty reputation. And I need to qualify lots of banks to lots of things that are naughty. Deutsche is kind of the top of the pile in that respect. You know, it's become kind of notorious.
0: Some quick history. Deutsche Bank started in Germany in 1870 and focused on banking German businesses. In its early years, it banked some troubling German clients, helping Nazis take over Jewish businesses and consolidate power. But eventually, like a lot of banks, it wanted more. More customers, more money, more clout. It wanted to grow. And to grow, it decided to poach people from big American banks and import the kind of aggressive culture that could compete. It was the classic Wall Street kind of swinging dick. It wasn't just that they went after bankers who were cutthroat. They did business that was risky, too.
2: You know, it's been involved in everything from toxic mortgages to market rigging. And now, over the last few years, people have started to look at the clients at the bank. Uh, You know, there's been stories about Jeffrey Epstein's relationship with the bank. There's been stories about Donald Trump's relationship with the bank.
0: By the time Deutsche Bank took him on as a client, Donald Trump had a reputation for not paying back his loans. Jeffrey Epstein had been convicted of soliciting prostitution from a minor. But in both cases— Deutsche Bank was willing to work with them. Why does it work with such risky people?
2: So, every financial institution has to do what they call risk modeling. Like, how much of an appetite do they have to take on clients that pose a risk? And that risk can either be, will they lose your money? But it will also be, will they get involved in crime? Do you want to take a bigger risk and perhaps earn more money? Or do you want to kind of play it safe? And Deutsche's appetite was much higher than other banks. So when people came along with a bad name or perhaps a troublesome business history, Deutsche was willing to take them on and help them move their money.
0: What Tom has spent the last year trying to figure out is exactly who these clients are, what crimes they've committed, and how far up did the knowledge of this go? What he's found is that some of the world's worst criminals use Deutsche Bank to move dark money around the globe. And executives all the way at the top knew they were exposed.
2: You know, it's basically the story of, you know, a major financial institution cutting corners on its money laundering defenses. And in that kind of, like, relentless pursuit for profit, it assisted some of the world's most dangerous criminals.
0: I told you the story of Babak Dardashti, the dentist whose money got stolen by the owner of L.A. Payroll, because it's a part, a very small part, of a scandal at Deutsche Bank that became public in August 2016. That's when news broke that Deutsche Bank facilitated a giant money laundering scheme that moved $10 billion out of Russia between 2011 and 2015. It's called the Mirror Trading Scandal. What is your sort of best summary of what the Mirror Trading Scandal is?
2: The mirror trading scandal was an ingenious system in how to move money from Russia to the rest of the world undetected. Uh, I mean, there's some financial wonkery here, which I'll kind of paraphrase, but... uh,
0: It turns out that not even Tom can explain this in a clear way, without some help. So let me give it a try. Mirror trading, on its face, isn't illegal. A lot of brokers do it. It involves two simultaneous trades in two different currencies. For instance, it might start with a client in Russia with rubles.
2: The clients would call up and say, hey, I need you to buy me, say, 10,000 shares in Gazprom, and then I need you to sell them for me immediately after buying them.
0: But this time, the client wants to sell for, say, euros or dollars.
2: The reason they call it a mirror is because the two sides of the deal mirror each other. So rubles buy shares, shares are sold for euros.
0: And it's the same person on both sides.
2: Same person on both sides, yeah.
0: Legitimately, traders might want to take advantage of foreign stock prices. You can totally legally make money this way. What made these particular trades linked to Deutsche Bank so suspect is that, in a lot of cases, the clients were actually losing money. These shell companies were arranging trades to move money from rubles to euros and losing money in the process over and over again you might be wondering, why would anyone want to do this? Well, if you're a criminal network, this is one way to take all the illicit cash you've made from drug smuggling or human trafficking and get it into a Western bank and into the world's most stable currencies.
2: And what happens there is effectively, you've moved Russian rubles out of Russia into the mainstream banking system without being detected and changed them into other currencies.
0: And the bank collects a fee on the transaction. Rinse and repeat, over four years, Deutsche Bank moved a total of $10 billion through the mirror trades. Now, sometimes it's hard to tell in financial stories when a big number is actually big. This number, $10 billion, is big. After the scandal broke, the U.S. and the U.K. governments fined the bank. But there were no prosecutions. There was also this. For years, nobody has known whose money moved through Deutsche And lots of people have been trying to figure that out. The truth is, it should be easy to answer. KYC, or Know Your Customer, is one of the most basic principles in banking. Before a bank takes on a client, it should know who they are. But Deutsche Bank didn't. And this is maybe the biggest problem. They were moving huge amounts of money in really suspicious ways for completely anonymous companies. What does your reporting add to this saga of the mirror trading scandal and what we know about Deutsche Bank?
2: In essence, it's two things. It's like whose money was laundered because money launderer launders money is interesting to me, but to the wider world is boring as fuck, you know? Whereas (laughs) being able to say, these are the criminals who did it. This is who you helped out, you know? And then um, the other thing is, is that It's really important to have accountability at the top of institutions. You know, in some respects, journalism is like stand-up comedy, like the rule is never punch down. And you want to look at, like, institutions and say, who is the most senior person who's responsible for what happened? And we're in a position to do that. And with major banks, it's a rarity because... Whenever anything goes wrong in a major institution like this, it's almost like um, a grandmaster level of chess where it's like protect the king at all costs, you know, and we um, were able to kind of start to price that apart a little bit.
0: What Tom found when he started digging through the FinCEN files was that the U.S. government had already done most of the work for him. He found a report that investigators at FinCEN made using the SARS Deutsche Bank had filed. He couldn't believe what he had his hands on.
2: Yeah. I mean, the term in the UK is a marmalade dropper. Do you know what I mean? It's something so <laughs> something so outrageous that you drop your marmalade on toast at breakfast. <laughs> so uh, I found a document and it basically was a blueprint.
0: A map of all the mirror trading entities Deutsche had been banking for years.
2: And it's kind of amazing because... For years, people have been like, what's this money, you know? Was it money that Putin sent to Trump? Or was it like, you know, was it an oligarch? Or what was it? And actually, the government has known for a number of years, uh, as is often the case. You know, and they just had it sitting there in a document, which is uh, is kind of amazing.
0: At the risk of being repetitive, I want to make this really clear. What Tom has discovered is that the U.S. government knows whose money was flowing through this secretive money laundering machine. And the government does not appear to have done anything about it. What do we know about whose money was actually moved?
2: We know that there was money from a really hardcore Russian mafia group. Um, The U.S. government has termed it the brother's circle. The wider network is involved in human trafficking and forced prostitution and heroin, you know, the really nasty stuff. So some of the money that was moved went to them. And then there's other money that went to a Middle East based money launderer called Altaf Kanani. Altaf Kanani laundered drug money for some of Mexico's most dangerous cocaine cartels. He also moved money for terrorist groups. We're talking about Hezbollah, Al Qaeda. Down, 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 down. So the money that was moving through the Mirror Network was, um, you know, it's linked to the kind of highest criminal pedigree.
0: It's kind of dizzying. I mean, hearing you say all those players and and all the bad ways this money was being used in one breath, it's like, oh my God, how is this all happening every minute? Yeah, so,
2: you know, it's really important to acknowledge, like, the scale of the criminality here. It is vast. These are not kind of garden-variety criminals.
0: Because of the FinCEN files, we can now confirm that the billions of dollars Deutsche Bank moved through suspicious mirror trades, that money funded terrorists and criminal networks responsible for some of the worst crimes on the planet. It also brought a number of small business owners in the U.S. to their knees. The U.S. Treasury, with its incredible investigative resources, uncovered that story. And then it appears they just sat on it. The question we haven't answered yet is who at the bank is responsible? If we don't want to punch down, how high can we hit? More after a break. Remember, this project is bigger than BuzzFeed. There are hundreds of journalists collaborating all over the world, including reporters at a German newspaper called Süddeutsche Zeitung. If you've ever heard of the Panama Papers, that's them. They came onto the project as part of the collaboration with ICIJ, and through their reporting, they got access to a new source of information. These weren't SARS. They were confidential documents that illuminated a lot more about what was unfolding inside the bank.
2: And they enabled us to tell a really important story. This story is as old as the hills, you know. Whenever something goes wrong, the people at the top of the organization, they're cared for, you know. But they find the kind of rotten apple and send them out. What these amazing new documents from Sir showed is that actually the most senior executives at the bank have presided over this system.
0: The system Tom's referring to is Deutsche Bank's internal compliance protocol. Like all banks, they have a team of people whose job it is to monitor transactions and make sure the bank is not doing illegal business. But Deutsche didn't seem to prioritize its team or its work.
2: You think of banks, right? What's your image? It's normally a guy in an expensive suit, and he's basically a knockoff of Gordon Gecko, you know? But not everybody (laughs) who works in a bank is like that. And the people who work on compliance are definitely not like that. They're the backroom people, you know? So these analysts are sat there looking at screens, having these alerts coming up at them, and they've got to process maybe hundreds or thousands of them a day. A lot of them just don't have the capacity to do that. Um, They they certainly didn't give them the support they needed with training, you know? Like, if you're going to have people sitting there looking at alerts all day, they should know what financial crime looks like. And these people are not... I really need to stress, these are like intelligent people who want to do well at their jobs, you know, and that's been stressed in every document we've read. But nobody enabled them to do that, you know. So the system is almost designed for them to fail. And um, there's something slightly slightly tragic about that.
0: Deutsche Bank's compliance team was under-resourced. The staff was overwhelmed. Everything was getting through the net. The bank wasn't filing many SARS. And these shortcomings were no secret inside the bank. Big banks like Deutsche have many compliance teams working all over the world. And they cross-check each other.
2: You know, and in fact, um, they would dispatch compliance officers from London to go and have a look at Russia. And uh, we've got emails where one of the compliance officers who was sent to check out Russia in 2014 emailed back just saying like, Russia needs to be addressed. The situation is not acceptable. So there were people in the bank who really like adamant, you know, things are out of control. Like we need to do something about it. Um, Unfortunately, nothing was. What gave the game away, you know, the real kind of crunch point is um, people from the Investive Committee of the Russian Federation, which is kind of like a Russian FBI sort of organization, visited the bank.
0: Ultimately, it wasn't until Russian law enforcement showed up that all of this became clear. It's the Russian rule of law. Investigators there had learned about a local money laundering network. They were looking into it. And they had questions for the bank staff.
2: And at that point, that's when the flare goes up and the bank realizes, like, the shit's about to hit the fan, you know? And they were just like, we need to investigate everything. So all of the time that they'd spent not investigating things they just ran at it, you know? And they started turning up various things within the bank. I guess it's a bit like, you know when you don't tidy your flat for a while and then you're like, oh my God, I've got to like clean behind the sofa and you pull the cushions up and you're just like, oh my God, what is lurking down here? Like none of this is good.
0: (laughs) At this point, Deutsche starts filing stars like crazy.
2: It's really interesting when you look through the SARs that some banks are flagging things regularly, whereas with Deutsche, it's like not very many SARs. And then all of a sudden, when things start going wrong, it's like, file a SAR, file a SAR, file a SAR.
0: It's the same pattern we talked about on our last episode with HSBC, where it appears certain banks don't start filing SARs until some external investigation is underway. The documents suggest it was only when Deutsche Bank saw that a big scandal was about to go public that they tried to get out in front of it they started filing a flurry of SARS, some of which Tom now has. Eventually, Deutsche pins the blame on an American trader in Moscow named Tim Wiswell.
2: He's been the kind of, um, really the kind of bogeyman in this story. He's quite a preppy American who's successful in finance, works for a kind of major systemic bank. Now, he has kind of been pegged as the main figure behind the trades, the guy that facilitates all these trades for the criminals and knew the criminals in Russia. And the documents that we've seen certainly seem to suggest that that is very much the case. But they also talk about another layer of accountability. And it's, it stretches far beyond Wiswell.
0: What this investigation has found, in fact, is that it stretches all the way to the top.
2: I mean, it's amazing when you read the internal investigation about Deutsche Bank, because there are two names that are conspicuously absent and... Uh, that's Christian Saving and Paul Ackleitner.
0: Christian Zaving and Paul Ackleitner. Let's start with Christian Zaving. Um, what, what can you tell me about him?
2: He's a lifelong Deutsche employee, basically. He joined the bank as an apprentice in his hometown. You know, he kind of rose to the top. And he was the head of audit when compliance teams were starting to raise the alert about the risk of money laundering in Russia.
0: So Deutsche has these people saying hey, we've got a real emergency in Moscow. And Savings Division was supposed to respond to that. But despite their colleagues' concerns, a team from Savings Division gave Deutsche's Moscow office satisfactory ratings in certain categories. As for its anti-money laundering and know-your-customer procedures, which the team was specifically instructed to evaluate, the records reviewed by BuzzFeed News show auditors wrote nothing at all. — The other name that Tom was interested in was Paul Ackleitner, the chairman of Deutsche Bank's supervisory board, which oversees the bank's executive board and its CEO.
2: In all of the documents that we've looked at, thousands of SARs, there's no chairman or senior executive of any major bank. There's only one. It's Paul Ackleitner.
0: So what Tom's saying is, of all the thousands of suspicious activity reports within the FinCEN files, having to do with questionable transactions being made by all manner of sketchy clients, shell companies for some of the worst criminals in the world. There was a report filed by a major global bank about another global bank. Deutsche Bank itself. Deutsche was the suspicious entity.
2: Banks were always visiting each other to check that the other financial institutions they're dealing with a legitimate, you know, that they're doing their job properly, you know? So they'll go and visit and be like, how do you check your clients? And do you have a, an anti-money laundering officer? That sort of thing. So what happened is Bank of America was looking at the money coming out of Deutsche. And it started to worry. It was like, this money is all coming out of Russia and the former Soviet states. It's all coming from shell companies. So they went to visit Deutsche to check it out. Like, what's going on here?
0: What happens next is pretty remarkable. A big, dramatic scene takes place in Deutsche Bank's London office, and it's spelled out in the documents. At some point in the meeting, a manager from Deutsche Bank interrupts the conversation and tells the Bank of America staff that they are, quote, not authorized to speak with anyone in London. Then he tells them they have to leave the building, which they do immediately. According to the SAR, Bank of America found the situation so troubling, it raised the matter with Ackleitner directly. The Tsar goes on to say that Ackleitner indicated the matter would be brought to John Cryan, Deutsche's CEO at the time.
2: And uh, a few months later, no answers were forthcoming. And so Bank of America took this really kind of exceptional step, which was to file a suspicious activity report on Deutsche Bank itself. Like Bank of America was so weirded out by what happened that they reported it to the U.S. Treasury. And we just find that kind of exceptional, you know?
0: As of today, Paul Ackleitner remains in power at Deutsche. In 2018, his board forced out CEO John Krein after a short three-year stint, citing recent sagging profits. The bank wasn't making enough money. On a Sunday evening that April, Ackleitner presented Deutsche's board with his choice for a new CEO. That person? The former head of the auditing division during the mirror trading years. Christian Saving. The board approved. Is Deutsche being held accountable today, would you say? And has the U.S. government done anything?
2: I mean, what's amazing is that nobody from the bank has been prosecuted. In fact, uh, there's been a financial sanction, but nobody's really been held accountable in a major way for what happened. It's kind of exceptional because, you know, if you go into a supermarket and steal a bag of sweets you will be held accountable. But the bank could launder like billions of dollars and um, off you go. You know, I mean, it's. Um, I think there's an issue in finance that obviously there are always going to be kind of academics and business people that are interested in the kind of technical issues. But, you know, these stories are more than just money launderer launders money. It's about bank aids bad person, you know, and I think being able to put a face to it, being able to put a name to it, I hope that it makes it a bit more real and people understand that, like, discussion of, like, financial crime or differing arguments of financial regulation, they're not, like, something that belongs just to a small set of people. These issues affect us all, you know?
0: That idea that these big amorphous financial crimes affect all of us It's something nearly every BuzzFeed news reporter I talked to said to me. It's easy to get lost in the numbers and the minutiae, to think of these stories and crimes as far away. But there are real consequences, affecting real people.
2: I graduated in 2007-08 when the financial recession struck. So I went back to my hometown, which is, it is to London what New Jersey is to New York. And for most of my 20s, I was either unemployed or a laborer, so... uh, (laughs) I was digging holes, you know, like, um, you know, breaking my back. (laughs) I think what I didn't understand is how much finance had impacted my life without me ever recognising it. Like, I, I had no idea, consciously. You know, when you're trapped in kind of a minimum wage job and you feel like you can't get out of that, like, realistic, you know, if I'm honest, there was a period of my life where I thought, I'm either gonna end up in the army or in prison or on the dole for the rest of my life. You know, like I just thought my ship had sailed. And you know, the world can seem a little bit unfair from that perspective. And it is, to be honest, it's a shitty life. But uh, it gave me an understanding that like, the cause of your life can be dictated by something that you can't see, most of us can't understand. And yet the power that it exerts is huge.
0: In response to this reporting, Deutsche Bank released a statement saying, quote, This is not new information to us or our regulators. They acknowledged past weaknesses and said they had learned from their mistakes and have, quote, engaged in disciplinary consequences including on management board level when the facts warranted it. We worked and still work constructively together with the authorities. We have invested almost $1 billion in improved controls, trainings, and operational processes and have increased our anti-financial crime team to over 1,500 people. We plan to continue to increase this number further. We are a different bank now. Next time on Suspicious Activity Inside the FinCEN Files, Two bank employees spot activity that looks fishy to them. Listen to hear the story of what happened when they told their bosses about it. If you want to read the reporting this podcast is based on, it's available at the website FinCENFiles.com. Suspicious Activity is a production of Pineapple Street Studios and BuzzFeed News, based on original reporting by Anthony Cormier, Jason Leopold, and the BuzzFeed News Investigations team. It's hosted by me, Azeem Gureshi. Our producer is Janelle Pfeiffer. Our associate producer is Kim Baikema, Editing by Joel Lovell, Maddie Sprung-Kaiser, and Ariel Kaminer. Fact-checking by Ben Phelan and Scott Pham. Our senior producer is Jonathan Menhivar. The episode was mixed by Johnny Vince Evans, Michael Rayfield, and Rob Byers of Final Final V2. Music by the band Friggs from their album Basic Behavior. Special thanks to Grace Chen, Fergus Scheel, Samantha Hennig, John Templon, Alex Campbell, and Mark Schoefs. Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky are the executive producers at Pineapple Street.